Hello, I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the second episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast series. This program featuring stories about the origins of no-till farming by Frank Lesseter is sponsored by Ingersoll and AgriSolutions. For more information about Ingersoll, visit them at www.ingersolltillage.com. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. In this episode, Frank Lesseter, founding editor of No-Till Farmer, sits down with West Virginia no-tiller Mike Wolpert. Listen in as Mike talks about how he once had to scale back his operation when some of the land he farmed was put up for bid, plus why he prefers aerial seeding his cover crops, the importance of using safety equipment, and more. Well, good morning. We're with Mike Wolpert, who's a veteran no-tiller from uh, West Virginia. Mike, tell us a little about where you're located in West Virginia and uh, your family and what you're doing. Okay. I'm in the western edge of West Virginia. We, the county I farm in is right along the Ohio River, and I've farmed some of the Ohio River bottom ground in the past. I don't currently, but I, my farms are currently on the Canal River, which is a large navigable river that comes up through the state. And uh, we're kind of an anomaly in West Virginia because it is pretty flat ground, which we are the mountain state. So uh, <laughs> there's not a lot of farm ground in the state and in our county is probably one of the largest ones. In fact, it is one of the largest ones, which is still small by Midwest standards. But uh, I've been down there since I graduated from college. And although I'm initially from Ohio, I've been in West Virginia since the mid-70s. So I guess I'm technically a West Virginian now. So how long have you been no-tilling? I actually uh, started a little bit of no-till in the mid-80s bought a planter and uh, the dealer suggested put no-till colders on. I knew nothing about it, but I think it cost me about $1,200 and I said, go ahead. <laughs> and I tried it a few times and wow, that works pretty good. On corn or beans? It was corn. Okay. But then sometimes it didn't work well at all. And I really didn't know why. And uh, my wife who at the time wasn't my wife, but I was dating my wife, Jeannie. She kind of challenged me. We were tilling ground that uh, was uh, plowed too wet in the spring and uh, about the fifth time over it, and I still didn't have a good seed bed. She said, well, why don't you just no-till everything? Quite frankly, I didn't have a good answer. <laughs> uh, I didn't know why sometimes it worked because earlier that spring, probably six weeks earlier, I had no-tilled some corn. It was knee-high side grass and here I was working dirt clods that were and I wasn't making a good seat bed and that kind of challenged me to kind of look into it and uh, I uh, looked at various resources read a lot and uh, and quite frankly learned of uh, the no-till conference and that probably was the uh, kind of the eye-opener to me because there were so many speakers that spoke to the problems that I was having with no-till yeah. and kind of the light came on and I I d haven't turned back since. I committed at that point that I was going to go 100% and um, since about 95 there's been virtually no tillage done. It's uh, just whenever we did some 
tiling or unfortunately did some rutting up, but other than that, it's been 100% no-till. What's your rotation? Corn, soybeans, a little bit of wheat, but there hasn't been much wheat in my rotation for the last 10 years or so. I, I was got a little bit mudded in this fall, so I've, I've got some wheat for 2019, but uh, primarily corn, soybeans. So earlier you told me you think you've been to more than 20 of our national no-tillage conferences. Yes, that's correct, yes. So uh, what do you get out of this every year? There's always new fresh ideas that, uh, wow, um, that's interesting. Sometimes it's not applicable to what I'm doing. I, I've found that different regions of the country can do different things that, and I can do things that they can't do. So, but I glean little points that, you know, maybe somebody in the deep south is doing that may not be, you know, applicable to West Virginia, but you know, that idea might work or far north. And I pick up something, you know, new every time. And I find that uh, there are new ideas. Uh, just yesterday, the guy talking about organic no-till. A few years ago, that would have, those two just didn't seem to mix. You know, he had some pretty good ideas. I'm not gonna, at this point, jump on the organic bandwagon. But it provokes thought that, you know, that, that right. could maybe be implemented in my operation. Well, it's interesting because we run these no-till roundtables and you go back four or five years and we did one on organic no-till. And I think maybe there were seven or eight people in the room. And then two years ago, we did another one and I think there were about 40 people in the room. I think I was in both of those because <laughs> just the idea, you know, intrigues me. Yeah, and we're going to do a report this year on organic no-till, so That's there's great. an interest in, I mean, and I've talked to a couple people here who are, maybe they're running 2,100 acres and they're thinking of transitioning 700 acres to organic no-till. They're, they're, they're interested, they're, maybe they'll make it work, maybe they won't. Well, I've told my wife and my kids that if I was 20 years younger, I would really consider uh, I have nothing for or against or organic. I don't know that the health benefits are what some of the health food industry kind of claims of it. I believe that's yet to be, you know, scientifically right. proven. But uh, economically, it makes sense. I was talking to a guy at a conference in Baltimore several years ago, and he said, I'll come to your farm and pay you $8 a bushel for organic corn. and." Uh, at the time, I think I was well below $4 and uh, below break even. That, that perks my interest. Right. So how many acres are you farming? Uh, I'm right at 500 right now. We used to farm a great deal more, but uh, scaled back oh, about 10 years ago. And uh, I uh, kind of claim I'm a gentleman farmer now, but not a gentleman. <laughs> Let's talk about a little about why you scaled back and what it meant to you. Um, well, it was uh, not a, a choice that I uh, willingly made. I had a lot of leased ground and I had 1,600 acres from one landlord. It was a large uh, power utility company and they decided they were going to change the way they were doing things and put the ground up for bids and I was not the high bidder. I was second highest but there, you know, there's only one winner in that so that was a big, I was at about 2,500 acres and I lost 1,600 in one fell swoop. 
I leased a little bit of ground for two years, uh, tried to pick up additional, but I'm in an area where there isn't that, there's probably not 20, 30,000 tillable acres in our, within a 50 mile radius. And it wasn't, I was not gonna get back up to the acres that matched the machinery. So uh, my wife and I decided, well, uh, we'll just scale back our, the size of our operation, the machinery. We had an auction and sold the majority of everything. And uh, I've been between 390 to 520 acres since then. And that kind of coincided about the same time that our children became more active and things. And I could then go to a school activity or soccer game and right. pay attention to what was going <laughs> on rather than being on the phone with truck drivers and everybody else. So it, it worked out relatively well. And my wife is a dentist and at the same time she needed some uh, help in her office, paying bills, paying taxes, doing payroll. So I kind of fell into that operation at the same time and it, it worked well for us. And although I, I would have liked to have maybe had the increased acres when corn was selling for $8 <laughs> and beans were 16, but uh, quality of life wise, I'm not so sure scaling back wasn't a good decision. Right, good. Now, over the years, you've done a lot of research on your farm. You've, you've looked at fertilizer rates, some other things. Can you tell us a little about what you've learned from that? Well, um, I've, I've played with a lot of different things over the years. I've uh, done in-furrow uh, applications. In my particular area, our ground warms up relatively quick in the spring. If it's dry enough to be planting, usually it's warm enough to be planting. And I, I found the only time that my inferro applications did well was when I had a really cool wet spring. Well, it wet, but cool was not usually our case. So they, I, I went away from that. I spread the majority of my fertilizer pre-plant with the exception of nitrogen. and. I'm to the point now I'm side dressing at least two times on nitrogen. I've, I've found that, you know, of course getting your pH correct is, you know, probably the most important thing. And then what in the last eight to 10 years, I've incorporated cover crops in there and the jury's still out on how to fertilize, in my opinion, how to fertilize using cover crops, uh, you know, things that Dave Brandt and others have uh, kind of explained to us over the years. Um, I'm wondering whether our traditional soil test put 200 pounds or whatever the soil test calls for potash is necessarily the way we ought to be going. Maybe we ought to be looking more at what are the, you know, some of these live plants able to provide for us and the timing, and I haven't figured out the magic formula yet, but I'm still working on it. I think we did a story with you years ago in which you said an extra $12 on fertilizer could make you $60 worth of corn. Yeah, uh, it, I, I'm not afraid to spend money to make money. Now, I'm, I'm tight enough that I'm not going to throw it away, and mm -hmm. I don't have excess resources to do so, but I do not shy away from spending money if I think it's going to, you know, if extra nitrogen uh, pre-tassel 
if I've got the potential, I don't mind throwing some extra money there because I, I'm not necessarily a high yield farmer, but we played with yield contests and so on. And I've seen 300 bushel corn, you know, measured it several mm -hmm. times and without great deal of extra expense from the 220 or so that the rest of the field will, will and there's a huge profit potential there. Um, I, I think there are some things that can be done with fungicides and et cetera that uh, will definitely pay off. Do they pay off all the time? No, you got to hit that. You got to hit that economic return. You mentioned cover crops. What are you doing in cover crops? Uh, about ten years ago, I kind of went all in on it, and uh, I've used cover crops almost on 100% of my acres for the last ten years. Uh, Primarily annual ryegrass. Uh, I've done a lot more mixes here of recent years, and I, I see some benefits there. And I, about three years ago, jumped on the planting green bandwagon, and I'm doing that pretty exclusively now. And I, it it takes some different management, uh, as does no-till or anything else. You just have to look at things a little bit differently and adjust your management accordingly and if you believe I think that it can work and I've you know seen at these conferences and other ones where people are making it work do your research beforehand believe that it can don't look for it to fail and usually you'll be successful in, in trying to uh, trying to make it work you have to be prepared uh, some of the uh, pitfalls of planning into too much cover I've been there before maybe not totally prepared and have had you know heartaches because of it but you can you have to work around those things occasionally so when you're planting green when and how do you terminate the cover crop that's been a learning curve that I've learned somewhat the hard way sometimes uh, I liked to terminate the day of just spray right before the planter or if I go ahead and plant wait about within four to five days. I like for the, uh, the cover to recover a little bit from the damage that the planter does as I go through. Let it bounce up just a little bit, then terminate. Now, depending on the height of the cover, with annual rye, I don't have the great massive amount of growth. When I've used cereal rye and I have a four foot or five foot cover, Getting that laid down flat is a little bit preferable. I've planted into four or five foot cereal rye before, and you can't see the the corn or the beans coming up for nearly six weeks. You kind of wonder <laughs> what on earth is happening. But I've also had some of the best yield averages, and under those circumstances, it's just a makes you a little bit nervous when it doesn't look like you've planted anything by the end of June and uh, then all of a sudden the green haze starts to overtake the, right. the dead cover. So what are you using to terminate the uh, cover crop? Primarily glyphosate uh, and depending with the uh, the extend term uh, technology of soybeans I'm, I'm putting uh, Extendamax or Ingenia in with that mix to get the broad leaves, but uh, I've, I've been sticking pretty much with the Roundup type system. There are some of my neighbors that have been using, you know, the Liberty Link, and I'm not quite sold on that. Uh, I, I believe it's good technology, but I, I have 
I haven't committed to that. You were talking about the sometimes taking six weeks to see the corn or soybeans come up through this green material. Reminds me of years ago, uh, somebody said to me, if a landlord comes to you and says, I'd like to go look at my no-till cornfields, he says they're so ugly, before July 4th, you should say to him, let's not do that, let's go fishing today. And then after the 4th of July, they start looking okay, and it's okay to show it to him. <laughs> well, that kind of goes back to what you had previously alluded to on the, when I scaled back the acreage, the uh, utility company had a uh, different representatives that would come down once or twice a year. And they had a lady uh, that, she, I, I'm sure she was quite knowledgeable and in real estate and so on, but she knew virtually nothing about uh, farming. And she came down, I suppose, early June, and I, I had just planted everything, and not everything had completely died. It, and quite frankly, it probably looked like I hadn't done a thing. And, right. you know, she's probably <laughs> used to plowed fields, tilled fields, and kind of questioned whether this guy was doing anything. And I, I've oftentimes wondered, you know, what her report said about that because the next year they put everything up for bids but i don't know that that means it may but maybe i should have uh, told her not to come down until after july 4th we'll rejoin the conversation with frank and mike in a moment but i want to take time once again to thank our sponsor ingersoll and agri solutions for supporting our no-till farmer influencers and innovations podcast series Ingersoll specializes in seedbed solutions. Whatever seedbed challenges you have, Ingersoll can give you the right tools to get the job done. For more information, visit them at www.ingersolltillage.com. Now let's get back to our conversation with Frank and Mike Wolpert. Plus, stay tuned as Frank answers a listener question about the early days of no-till. So what do you use for a planter? I have a uh, Deer 1790. It's a 12-31 uh, row. So I, I plant corn in the 30-inch rows and I use 15-inch uh, rows for soybeans. Using colders or not? No. I uh, threw the colders away a couple of years ago. I'm just using row cleaners. Um, I, uh, of course, have air downforce and seed firmers and then I use uh, it's called a copperhead closing wheel. I used to use the spike closing wheels as a, I've got into the taller vinier covers. Uh, those spiked wheels and, and green covers sometimes are not a good combination. So uh, I, I went, it's not as an aggressive a closing system as I like, but um, it, I don't have the plug, plugging and wrapping. And that's, as I was saying, the management of uh, planting green you just you have to make some adjustments there and find it. there are some other options that I've seen here today and have seen in other media that I think would work that it would be a little bit more aggressive but uh, I just invested a good bit in the planter last year and I'm not going to spend a great deal more on it until I see a little bit more wear or, or uh, Genie lets me spend more money. <laughs> I, I also one another important thing on the planter I uh, dribble nitrogen on both sides of the row behind the, the closing wheels, which I think is really important for corn production to uh, overcome that uh, 
that nitrogen deficit that you have shortly after planting. You mentioned earlier at the no-till conference you see some ideas from other regions that may work for you but in some other regions they won't. And it's interesting because I heard Paul Yassa from uh, University of Nebraska Ag Engineer talk to our group yesterday and he said when it comes to planter attachments you should look at where it's being manufactured because they probably build it for their conditions in that area. And if, you, if, you, if you're in West Virginia, maybe something that's built in Ohio works, but maybe something in Wyoming, the soil conditions are totally different. Yeah, and uh, with, with the planter attachments, with what they're doing, as I was saying, I, I went all in on the uh, inferro. Well, if you look at the speakers, you look at the research, inferro fertilizer, if you go north of I-80, pretty common and probably see common yield response. Uh, below that, mm, it gets a little bit iffier. And uh, what you're saying, region make, right. does make a difference. Uh, the Western Corn Belt certainly doesn't deal with the moisture that we have in the Eastern Corn Belt. So uh, I can count the number of dry springs I've had probably on one hand and maybe have fingers left over. Wow, that's great. You know, well, but the opposite of that, uh, the wet springs, the rain every other day type thing can make, make things kind of challenging at times. So. Residue management. At harvest, are you planting cover crop on all your ground? Yes. Right? I'm trying to, yes. So after corn harvest or soybean harvest, you try to get it in right away? Uh, yes. Uh, I use a lot of aerial seeding. Okay. Uh, uh, probably over the last 10 years, 70-80% of what I've done has been with an airplane. Uh, works probably 70-80% of the time. Uh, I've had a few failures. But uh, preferably if you're doing multi-species, I, I like the grain drill uh, a little bit better. Uh, some of the larger seeded things, peas and so on, uh, they don't they don't germinate very well unless you have some good soil seed contact. So I, I have a, an older John Deere 750 drill that still does a pretty good job with cover crops when, uh, you know, when I get the stuff off early enough or I've got a situation where it wasn't quite right to aerially seed. Uh, you you got to get your conditions just right, crop maturity and, and, you know, pray for a rain within a week or two, which doesn't always happen. But. So how, how long before harvest will you aerial seed? Uh, generally, I'm the first half of September. I, I very, I don't, I think probably the 4th of September is the earliest and the 20th of September is the latest. Somewhere in that, mid, you know, 12th to the 15th of September has been, for my area, the best I can usually Corn, I, I usually have relatively good luck. Soybeans, it depends on where we are. Uh, soybeans need to be definitely yellow leaves to leaf drop for the best results. Using GPS? Yes. What, what, what do you run? What do you have? Um, auto steer on, the, on tractors. Uh, I don't use RTK, but uh, uh, yeah, I use auto steer and, uh, on the tractor and combine. And Yield monitors? Yes. So how do you use that data? Because our fertilizer application equipment, which is changing this year, didn't, couldn't use, use variable rate. I would use yield maps, determine where 
in the area or where in the field I've, I've got some uh, yield problems or less yield look at the soil uh, test for those and try to I call them production zones uh, because we didn't have variable rate uh, fertilizer technology it was it was tough you know to you know, say uh, you, I want 350 pounds here, 250 pounds, but I could do zones and, okay. you know, I use the maps for that. Um, and also variety uh, with with the GPS, uh, it, you know, of course it makes no difference what direction you're planning. You don't always have a straight line that coincides with the way you run the combine, but with uh, with that technology, you can I, I, with soybeans especially, I've seen as much as an eight to ten bushel difference in yield just on variety, and that's that's really significant. And of course, the same is true with corn. But I've I noticed with beans especially uh, my variety selection and the, those yield maps. Whereas overall field yield would not would not speak to me. I visually seen it. Yes, sometimes you can. You can tell one one variety is better than the other, but uh, a well calibrated combine with the yield maps, you can make some good economic decisions because oftentimes the difference in price between variety A variety B is is you know virtually the same. But if you're looking at a eight bushel difference in yield in beans, that's you know close to hundred dollars an acre. You mentioned you made some changes in your fertilizer program and equipment. You do, what are you doing different? Well, as, as I indicated a little bit earlier, I'm, I'm putting more nitrogen on with the planter on corn. Um, I'm usually running all oh, 60 pounds, 60 actual pounds uh, on both sides of the seed trench, which is really helping with uh, the nitrogen that uh, it takes to break down that, that residue early. Because without that, I had some pretty yellow sorry looking corn up until it you know, we got it side dressed so uh, I've done that I've and I've cut back on some rates not necessarily because of the economics of crops now but I wasn't seeing yield response uh, and it kind of goes to what Dave Brandt and others are telling us that these cover crops are bringing up phosphorus and potash that is we the soil test isn't showing is available I, I believe these cover crops and I don't know the how the biology works but they're doing that making it available and although I'm not cutting out well occasionally I will cut out a phosphorus or potash uh, application if my my soil test levels are high but I'm not mining the soil at all. My, my soil test levels are staying the same and gradually increasing without increasing the amount of potash and phosphorus I'm putting out there. We've covered a lot of subjects, but I, one I want to get into is with your wife, Jeannie, and she's been a speaker over the years at a couple of these conferences. She has some, she has some concerns about chemicals, doesn't she? Yeah. I'm not going to say that she's a uh, fanatic on it, but she has good concerns about, she realizes that we have to use chemicals, but she wants to make sure that it's the minimal amount 
and she's adamant on safety equipment. If I would hate to see it if she would catch me pouring chemicals in a in a sprayer in a mixing drum without a face shield and without proper gloves and the whole Tyvar suit and so on. To say that's never happened, uh, no, I'm, I, I'm, I'm telling on myself now, but, and, and that is a good idea because she, you, although a dentist, you kind of think that they're primarily dealing with teeth, she looks at the whole health of people and she's dealt with people who are chemically sensitive and it, it's not the acute exposures that I think cause a lot of health problems. It's the chronic, over the last 20 years, breathing that dust, breathing that mist, and so on. So I, I kind of have to agree with her, and I'm glad that she's adamant on wearing protective equipment because uh, we're in this for the long run, not just a, right. a short-term, you know, type of thing. Has she questioned some of your choices on different herbicides or fungicides? Not necessarily specific, but I think there's just kind of a general, is this one, is it safe to mm -hmm. use? And are you using the proper way of doing it? I mean, there are, uh, there are you know, certain levels of danger with certain chemicals, and I can't remember exactly how the skull and, <laughs> and bone things work on the, the uh, chemical thing, which I think you're supposed to know for your pesticide license, but that be as it may, uh, I, I am adamant on, or she's adamant, and I've become ingrained in my mind that you have to use the proper uh, protective equipment when you're using this stuff. Right. Going out there with bare hands and shirt sleeves and no face mask is uh, you're, it's not are you going to be damaged, it's when it's going to happen. So I try to take those precautions. What's going to happen with you and Jeannie and the kids in 10 years? Still going to be farming? Uh, I don't know. that. As long as I'm physically able and uh, I, I want to continue to do that, we don't have any retirement plans that involve moving away from the farm. Uh, our kids are getting a little bit older and if they are in the area and they want to continue on with it, that would be great. But uh, uh, for the time, for the foreseeable future, we're going to continue what we're doing. She has uh, sold her practice and is kind of semi-retired now. And she kind of enjoys coming out and helping on the farm. In fact, this fall, she ran the grain cart or the combine most of the days that we were out there. So it's uh, we, we both enjoy it. So she's got more time to come out and see if you're wearing your gloves and you got your face shield, huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, she wasn't. She wasn't out there that much this spring to catch me not doing so. But I got a sneaking suspicion in '19. I'm, I, I better make sure that they're pretty right. close at hand so I can throw them on quick. <laughs> well, Michael, thanks very much. A great session, learning more about you and uh, continuing your success. And been very successful with uh, no-till and planting green and cover crops. Uh, Appreciate knowing you all these years. Oh, I appreciate you, you Frank. Thank, Thank you. you. And now for our no-till farmer listener questions. Frank, how did the word get out about Harry Young and what he was doing on his farm that perked up so many years? 
Well, the word spread in, in Kentucky, and uh, he had a number of field days, and he worked with Shirley Phillips, who was an agronomist at the University of Kentucky, and he had worked for, with Shirley from uh, day one, even the year that they put out seven-tenths of an acre. And I've been in that field. It's been continuous no-till for 50-some years. But they had field days, and even people who didn't believe in no-till went to his field days. There would be field days with 300, 400 people at them. Number of people came in from South America on special tours, there were bus tours. Harry had been an ag economist at the University of Kentucky, so he understood the value of education and how to get it done. And he would, share, he would always share any idea he had with these people. Interesting enough, the University of Kentucky people are the people who put in business for no-till our biggest competitors in the world because they made a number of trips to Brazil and Argentina and there were, there were times early on when the Brazilians were ahead of us in no-till, particularly with wheat and double crop soybeans. And they're a major player in the market today because the guys from North Kentucky put them in the no-till business. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Mike Wolpert for sharing these stories and memories about the beginnings of no-till. Similar stories can also be found in Frank's book, From Maverick to Mainstream, which is available at notillfarmer.com forward slash no-till maverick. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Ingersoll and AgriSolutions, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.